0: Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community. And I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. So anyways, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and I hope you brought a Bible with you. We want to continue our study in the book of Genesis. We're going to be reading out of Genesis 48, 49, and 50. We're going to finish our study, actually, in the book of Genesis. So turn to Genesis chapter 48. If you don't have a Bible with you, underneath the seat around you, there's a hardback black Bible, and and you can pull that Bible out, and you can use it, and you can turn to page 41 in that Bible. And that'll get you right to Genesis chapter 48. Everyone else can turn there in your smartphone or whatever. And we, we will put some words on the screen for you to follow along. And I'll, I won't read all of the chapters. I went back and forth on whether or not I should do that. There's, there's one great story that's being told here. It's the death of our main character, Jacob. We've been studying Jacob for some time. And it tells that story. But what I'm, I'm looking more specifically to do is to reach inside of this narrative of Jacob's death and, and maybe see a model for, for our lives. Um, this sounds sort of cryptic right now, and I hope it'll make sense as I get, get through it. But there's, there's a unique perspective that I have on Jacob's life before he dies. That um, as I read about his death and how the people mourned for him and lamented his loss, when I, when I look into that, it actually makes me consider I wonder if, if people will mourn me and lament me. Or better yet, will people mourn you and lament you after you're gone? And I'm not talking just about your family and your friends. We expect that of them. But how about the communities we live in? Will we be missed if we're gone? That's really what I'm I'm, I'm looking to get into today. So um, let me do a little bit of groundwork to bring us up to speed before we launch into Genesis chapter 48. Last week, if, if you were here, you'll remember that, that Jacob had just found out that his beloved son, Joseph, was alive. That Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery many years ago, came home and told their father, Jacob, that Joseph had died, been killed by a wild beast of some sort. Since for the last 22 years, he's just believed that his son was dead. But he just recently found out that he is not dead. In fact, he's been living down in Egypt. And there's been an invitation given to Jacob and the rest of his family to move down to Egypt and to be reunited with his son, Joseph. And then secondarily, and maybe even most importantly, is that there's been a famine all throughout the world, and no one has any food except for Egypt. And so the invitation is also to go down to Egypt and live and to, to be invited truly by God himself to come down to, G, to, to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph and to live. I mean, how many people would agree that God would have us to choose life over all things, right? I agree with you. And yet, when we read the story last week, we saw that, that Jacob, he moved all the way to the southern part of the land of Canaan, and he hesitated he stopped, like he, he couldn't commit fully to go into Egypt. There was a barrier there. And we learned last week that it was fear, that he had this fear inside of him. It was possibly driven by this reality that, that the promised land had been given to him, his father and his grandfather through God himself, as, as well as a promise to be made into a great nation. And I think Jacob was fearful that if he stepped out of the promised land, that he would also step out of the promises of God. And this fear arose inside of him. And so God comes to him in Genesis chapter 46, and I'm going to read a couple of verses, three and four, to catch us up. But God comes to Jacob in the middle of the night in a vision, and he says these words in Genesis 46, three. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid, he says. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I love this idea. It's, it's God coming alongside Jacob and just reminding him that I'm the one who makes the promises, And I'm the one who keeps the promises. So don't worry about whether or not you're in this promised land or not in this promised land. If you're doing this thing or not doing this other thing. If I've made a promise over you, I will keep that. And that's encouraging to us. Yes? And he says these words. He says, I'm going to go down into Egypt with you and I will make you into a great nation. I will make you into a great nation. I will go into Egypt with you. I myself will go down, and I will also bring you up again. Well, that's wonderful news to hear, that I can leave the promised land of God, still invoke the promise of God, and go back into the promised land at some point. And, and last week, I skipped over this last part of chapter, or verse 4, that I wanted to spend a little time with here. It says that Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What does that mean exactly? Um, you, you know that part in the film where uh, a movie or something you're watching when someone dies and there's someone close to them and they just kind of reach up on their face and, and pull their eyelids closed? That's what, that's what Moses is telling us, that, that, that Jacob will go down to Egypt, God will fulfill his promise, he will be reunited with his son once again. He says, you will not die until you see Joseph, and that's real encouraging, and Joseph will be the one to close your eyelids after you breathe your last. It seems kind of dark when you think about it. You're like, okay, here's how you're going to die. Good luck to you. And sends him on his way. But I want you to know that that's the springboard by which we jump into the message today. Genesis chapter 48, verse 1, it speaks of Joseph becoming ill. Jacob, sorry, becoming ill. Joseph was told, behold, your father Jacob is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him to go see their grandfather. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as we jump into this passage. And I'm going to ask that we pray not so much for ourselves individually. How many people would agree that it's okay to pray for yourself, that God would do things for you to help you, to help you understand? And I, yes, the answer is yes to that. We, We even see that modeled by Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament as he prayed for himself. But I don't want to pray for us individually today. I want to pray for us as a church. Would you let me do that? I want to pray for us as a community that we might hear from God. That And th- this has been my prayer all day, that God would, in fact, task us with something. That we would have a purpose and a meaning. That renaissance ourselves. That we would have um, a purpose for existing in our community, in our city. Um, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me just pray for that. God, we thank you for our time together. I look around this room and I'm blown away at how, how crafty you are as you needlepoint together all of the people in this room. Y- yes, Lord, I know many people here tonight have family, church families elsewhere and they attend churches elsewhere. And that's fine. We love other churches in the city. We are on the same team, Team Jesus. But for those of us who call Renaissance home, God, we're, we're seeking your wisdom and your counsel today that we wanna come before you today the living God, the creator God, and that we would hear from you collectively, that we would have a, a marching order of sorts, that we would go forth from this place and to do the very will that you would have us to do. We thank you for meeting us individually and we thank you for meeting us corporately. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jacob doesn't have much time left, so he calls Joseph in. Joseph brings his son's in. And, and Jacob begins to tell him some things. You can read all of this yourself in chapter 48, but know this, that there's one significant point that stuck out to me. Jacob spends much of his time with his son and his grandsons telling them about his life. He says these words. He says, he says Abraham right? My grandfather followed God, the shepherd in his life. And my father, Isaac, followed God like a shepherd in his life. And he's implying that he too used God as a shepherd, a waypoint in everything in his life. His whole life evolved around following God. Wherever God went, Jacob tried to go. And he he admits that he's not done the best at this, right? And some of us here in this room might even admit that as well, that we've that we've tried to follow God, but how many would admit, just by show of hands, it's not an official poll or nothing, but how many would admit you tried to follow God and actually went the wrong way? Huh? <laughs> so I'm not alone. <laughs> Amen. Yes. And what we, what we do when we find ourselves drifting from maybe where God really intended us for, uh, to go is we just change directions. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. To start the Reformation, thesis number one was this, that the life of a Christian would be a life marked by repentance. Do you know what repentance is? Returning to where God is. That's all repentance is. It sounds like a big churchy word. It just means this, you've missed it. Jesus is over there somewhere, and you're standing here going, why won't you talk to me? And he's going, hello? I'm over here now. And and Jacob talks about that with his son and with his grandsons. Listen, it is imperative that you understand this. I'm going the way of all men, I'm going to pass, to dust I shall return, but you must understand this. He then, in chapter 49, proceeds to bring in all of his other sons, there's 12 in total, 12 sons of Jacob, and he brings them in, in a a descending order, from the oldest to the youngest, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and the rest of which I forget their names, and he brings them in and he talks to them about their lives. He says something to each one, and you can read all of this in chapter 49. There's some really poignant things that he says, some really important things that he says to his children. He says to some of them, I see things in your life. God is going to use you to do this great thing. I see this thing in your life. Yeah, that was a mistake. And because of that, you're going to miss an opportunity here. And over and over and over it goes that he to use church language, so just bear with me here, but he, he speaks prophetically over his own sons. Uh, uh, prophetic words are oftentimes forth telling. He, he knows what's going to happen, and this is not because Jacob is some wise guy. It's because he has the Spirit of God inside of him. If anyone ever comes to you and they have a, a prophecy or a word for you, ask them first if they are filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and if they say, who? And you go, then you run. Kick them in a the shin and run. <laughs> Get away from them as fast as you possibly can. No, this wisdom, this, this prophetic word comes from God himself through Jacob the patriarch into his son's lives. And for each one of them, he gives direction and encouragement. So this last week, my wife's been away at a, a conference down in Dallas. So I've been sort of uh, batching it, if you will, except I have two teenage daughters, which I never see. It's the strangest things. We live in the house. In fact, I think Stacey, my wife, has gone for two days before my children noticed that she was gone. <laughs> I mean, that is summer living when you're a teenager, right? You're just constantly going and going and going. Um, And as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about this idea that we oftentimes um, long for that time, maybe on our deathbed, when we get to speak to those that are closest to us, um, whisper in their ear, a last, I love you. And you meant the world to me. Give them some encouragement for their life. Maybe even a family secret, right? Where the the buried treasure is in the backyard or something, right? But I, I wonder why. Not to be a downer here, but I can, I can tell you officially that the mortality rate in this room is 100%. That everyone in this room is going to die. No shock there. Here's the, the terrible thing, is it will come suddenly and unexpectedly for many of you in this room. I've been pastoring long enough to know. I have preached funerals on Friday when we did not know that the person was going to die on Monday. And if you and I are waiting for this opportunity to speak to our loved ones, to the ones that we care most about, we, it's a very real possibility and even probability that we'll miss that opportunity. So uh, running through all of this in my mind is I'm by myself this week, I'm taking one of my daughters up to volleyball practice up in Bloomington on Friday and Saturday, and I have some time with her. And I think to myself, this is, this is one of those God-ordained moments. I'm going to spend some time talking to her, Right? But here's what you need to know about teenagers. They're, they're like wild rabbits. They're real skittish. Like if you spook them, they, they just poof, disappear into the bushes. And that, that is the life that I live with my daughters. But here's an opportunity. They're in the car with me, and they cannot jump out. I'm going 85 down the highway. I have a God-given time with them. Uh, you will listen to me when I tell you about my life. And I remember thinking saying things like this, you you know, daddy, you know, dad loves Jesus, right? Oh, dad. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? And as soon as I mention Jesus or anything spiritual, like their eyes roll back in their head. (laughs) I'm like, you know that, right? My, My kids are still kind of young. I haven't really had the opportunity to share the wicked and cruel things that I did in my life before I became a Christian. I pray for a day where I get to do that and tell them that Jesus, the, um, Christ, made such an impact in my life, and because of that, I live the life that I now have. Because of that, I have your mom, Stacy, as my wife. Because of that, I'm pastoring a church because of what Christ has done in my life, and I want that desperately for them, too, and I want them to understand that, and so I'm just taking these opportunities to share good things about my life for them. Jesus is important. It's about all I could get in before we could change the subject. But I encourage each of us to take opportunities to do that, to spend time with the people that we really hold dear and to not wait for a a different opportunity. Jacob fortunately knows that his time is nearing an end. He, He is sick. He sees this. He calls everyone to speak to them. And then it says he passes away. But before he does, at the end of chapter 49, starting in verse 29, Jacob has a few other commands for his sons. I I like to think of these as funeral arrangements. (laughs) He says uh, in verse 29, Then he commanded his sons and said to them, I must be gathered to my people. Right? Bury me in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham, my grandfather, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. He's saying, do not bury me in Egypt. See, when I came down to Egypt, God promised. He said, I will go down with you to Egypt. And he said, and I will bring you back again. And he, he's a man. This is so great. Jacob is a man, even in his death, he's a man of hope that God would do something great. And so he makes his son's promise. He's like, don't leave me here in Egypt. Take me back to the promised land. Bury me in the cave of my ancestors. Verse 31, there there inside this cave is Abraham and Sarah, which is his grandparents. And there they also buried Isaac and Rebekah. His parents are in this tomb. And there he's also buried one of his wives, Leah. And with great detail, he spells out not just any cave, not just in the promised land, but in a specific place. This is where I I want to go. This is where I'm I'm believing God will take me one day. Verse 33, and it says, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet onto the bed, and he breathed his last. And he died. Chapter 50, verse 1, Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. This is the fulfillment of that promise that God gave in 46, that Joseph will close your eyes. Joseph was there when Jacob breathed his last. Maybe a good opportunity to remind everyone here that God is, in fact, not just a promise maker, but a promise keeper, that he kept this promise as well. Even the most obscure, unusual, unique ones, the things that that God spoke maybe over your life a long time ago, and you've since forgotten them, God would want to lovingly remind you he has not forgotten them. That These things will come to pass. I'm convinced that's the last thing on Jacob's mind as he's breathing his last. And yet Moses records for us those very details. Look at the God we serve. Look at the details by which he goes to fulfill all of the promises that he has made. Joseph was there to close the eyes of his father. They mourn for him for a few days, skipping down to chapter 50, verse 4. says that when the days of weeping for for Jacob were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak to the ears of Pharaoh, saying this, that my father made me swear, saying that I'm about to die in, in my tomb, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go and bury my father, and then I'll come back Joseph is asking his boss, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, can I have a few weeks for bereavement, please? Can I take my father's body and bury him back in the land of Canaan, the promised land? And Pharaoh says, sure. Verse 6, Pharaoh answers, yeah, go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. So Joseph went up to bury his father. But check this. This is where it gets really awesome. And with him went all of the servants of Pharaoh. The elders of Pharaoh's household and all of the elders in the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, which could be expected. Only the children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen back in Egypt. In verse 9, And there went up with them as well both chariots and horsemen. It was a very large or great company of people. And most of them were Egyptians. (laughs) this is profound to us. There's about 70 people that went with Jacob down into the land of Goshen or down into Egypt, 70 or so. And now this great big company of people are traveling back up through the desert into the promised land, and more of them are Egyptians now. It says there was such a, let me keep reading verse 10, and says, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, wherever that is, which is beyond the Jordan. Thanks for that. They lamented here with a very great and grievous lamentation, and they made a mourning for the father, Jacob, for seven days. Seven days they parked on top of this hill. That's typically what a threshing floor would look like. It's this place where they would crush the grain, the wheat, and they would throw it up into the air, letting the wind sweep over the top of the hill. The chaff would blow away. The grain would fall to the ground. They would gather it up, and it's in this one specific place for seven straight days. They hold this I don't know what you'd call it. It's not awake, but it's some, some type of deep mourning and lamentation. So much that other people around the nation notice it. Keep reading here. It says in verse 11, When the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, right? The Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor at Atad. They said to themselves, Wow, this is a grievous mourning by who? The Egyptians. Now... <laughs> You're like, so? Well, let me just walk you through the process in my mind that got me to really be wowed by this passage. The Egyptians are mourning. We expect Joseph and his family, of course, they're mourning and lamenting as well. But it's the Egyptians that are mourning. That's the thing that stuck out to me. And why is that? Because back in chapter 46, when Jacob was first making his way down into Egypt, we learned that all of the Egyptians viewed Jacob and his family of shepherds as an abomination. That the Egyptians actually viewed the Hebrew people as detestable. People they did not want to spend time with. People they prefer to live on the outskirts of town. These are the people you do not want to buy the house that's for sale next to you. Someone say amen? Amen. Right? You know those people. I'm not going to point out any fingers, but you know, right? There's just some people you don't want to have business with or do dealings with. And, And that's who Jacob and his family is. And yet, in 17 years since Jacob has been down there, he has somehow been able to change the hearts of the Egyptians around. That he is no longer actually held as an abomination or detestable in their sights. But there's something within them that would cause them to like, close up shop, leave everything behind, travel the 300 plus miles up into the land of Canaan, bury a guy they kind of know, and then come all the way back to their families back here. What on earth changed their opinion? I thank you for asking. because so I think I have maybe some insight. It says here, in chapter 47, verse 7, when Jacob was first introduced to Pharaoh, it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He told him about his life, he told him how hard it's been, He's lived a long time, that you know it's kind of crazy. And then at the end of their meeting, it says in verse 10 that Jacob blessed Pharaoh again. This Hebrew word blessed it implies um submission it implies surrender in fact there's a picture in in the hebrew that it's in fact bowing down that when 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 jacob comes before pharaoh he he submits himself he bows down to him now we would expect that because don't we curtsy and bow before dignitaries and kings and queens and all of that stuff but this is there's there's more to it than just that it has it carries with this um with it this idea of serving pharaoh and his courts serving pharaoh and his people I mentioned that there was about 70 people that left the, the promised land with Jacob and came down into Egypt. Those 70 people are now inundated with a group of Egyptians, outnumbered, surely, you know, hundred to one, a thousand to one. There's only 70 of them, millions of Egyptians. These same Egyptians do not worship the God of the Bible. These same Egyptians do not worship the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they worship gods like the Nile River, the sun god, etc. And and yet the the Hebrew people, they worship the the God of creation, the God who created the Nile River, the God who created the sun god. And they're they're in the middle of this culture of people, a, a pagan nation, if you will, people who do not believe in God. And yet they were able to impact that nation so much and in such a profound way that when Jacob died, they stopped everything to go mourn him. Did you know that the median-sized church in the United States of America is 75 people? 70 people left Canaan and went down to Egypt and changed the culture of a nation of people who did not believe in God. <laughs> Christians, God bless us, have this uncanny ability to create this unique subculture within a culture. And we contain to ourselves. We gather people unto ourselves. And we do this little Christian thing around all of these other Christians. And I, I wonder if sometimes God's heart for us isn't to actually get outside of the church and go into the culture around us and effect change, much like Jacob and his family did. And when I prayed earlier, I'm like, God, give us something as a church to do in, in the community around us. Let us be a people who, like if we were gone tomorrow, people would miss us. They'd lament that we're not here. If we were to evaporate and dry up tomorrow, there'd be six to 800 of us, right? That's the people that come to Renaissance on most weekends. We'd miss it. But I don't care about that. I mean, right? Will, will they miss us? And they do so, to use that word, by blessing Pharaoh and his people in, an, in a picture of surrender and submission and humility hear me, I'm convinced we can do that in the culture around us and we don't have to uh, stray from our beliefs in the Bible. In fact, I I would argue we must be biblically literate, that we must know the Bible and the God that it talks about in the Bible, the the Son Jesus that has come to redeem us and to rescue us, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, everything that the Bible talks about must be inside of us before we even ever attempt to go into the culture and shape it. But that is what God's called us to do. Jesus, in of his, after his resurrection, before he ascends back to the Father in heaven, he tells his disciples, go into the world. I mean, the world is not Christian. You guys understand that, right? You Christians, you God lovers, you Jesus lovers, you Christian people, go into the world and change it. Stop sitting in your living room watching really bad Christian movies. oh Uh-oh. <laughs> got him. (laughs) Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he's speaking to God's people, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you, you, listen, God's people, he says, you have been called, you are salt and light in the earth. Uh, light's an easy concept to get. If there's a dark corner in a room and, and you flip a light on, the darkness runs away. I don't think I would be jumping too far to say these words, that I think evil thrives in darkness. I think evil and sin and debauchery you know, live in the dark corners of our lives. And and what God is saying, Jesus is saying to his people, you can be light. You can actually step into a room with the presence of God inside of you and it's as if God's light himself begins to shine and people see things that they were doing that no longer make sense to them. I've actually had... Um... All right. So I've had... I've had some crazy encounters with God where um, I became a Christian. I had to leave some people behind because I, the people I ran with were just crazy people. I was one of them. I don't, it's not a despairing comment. I'm just saying that they were not living their lives for God. And I decided to live my life for God. So I, I left some of these people behind. Um, um, I had to get sober, et cetera, okay, all that stuff. Um, but then years go by, I'm a Christian now, God's Spirit is inside of me, and I couldn't help but stay up at night thinking about those past friends, those past acquaintances, those people that I, I really loved. They're like my first like real close family outside of my family. Like They were my people. And I desperately wanted to go back and, and be with them again. And yet I struggled with drinking, I struggled with some other things, and, and I just got this unseated belief that because the Holy Spirit is inside of me, there's in fact nothing I should be fearful of. And so I sat in a car one night with my wife and another friend of mine. We're all Christians and we're, this is so crazy. We're praying in, the, in my car outside, uh, in the parking lot outside of a bar where all of my friends are inside. They're in bands, right? We're going to go and watch the bands play. And I'm like, I'm going to go inside and be with them. And I'm praying in my car. I'm like, Lord, please give me the strength to not drink. Please give me the strength to not lust after women. Please, I mean, that's my whole life before. Please give me the strength to do all of these things. And God, and most importantly, I want to go love my friends, and I do not want to preach to them. I do not want to do that. In fact, Lord, and I held up my finger, I will not preach to them. If you want me to talk about you, then you make them bring it up. So I go into the bar. I'm sitting there drinking water after water after water. <laughs> like, this is so awesome. The band is incredible. I love it. I miss it, everything. And people come up to me, and they're pulling their wallets out. This is when people carried photos in their wallets. This is old-timey days. And they're showing me pictures of their kids that I've not seen in five, six, seven, eight years. Fro, how have you been? That's my nickname. Fro, how have you been? And I'm telling them all this stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden, the, the conversation shifts. So I hear you're going to church now. So I hear you this and that. I hear, tell me about God. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about all this. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And with care and compassion and love and kindness, I told them told him about Jesus, how he showed me showed me so, so many of the things in my life were actually not good for me, so many things in my life were actually leading me to a place of despair destruction heartache, hurt, and God rescued me from that path and put me over here only through christ and in fact here 's the encouraging thing i wasn 't even looking for God when God found me that 's encouraging oftentimes your friends don 't even know they have no God is not even on their radar. would you admit that for many of your friends and family not even on the radar, but guess who 's on uh, They are on God's radar is what I would like to say. God cares about them deeply. And God would love to tell them about Jesus. And guess how he's going to do it? (laughs) He's going to do it with people like us. And the city is the same way. And what we see modeled in Jacob's life is a picture of what it looks like when God's people can come together. And not just be known for the things that they're against. You know, holding up those those signs outside of funerals and gay pride parades and all of that stuff. And all of the stuff that they're against. But somehow coming alongside of this pagan group of people, these unbelieving people, and love them in such the way that it would draw them to Christ. This is not a unique thought, everyone. But unfortunately, the church lately has just become known for being jackholes. Many people experience, when you ask them about church and going to church and being around Christian people, they're like, I won't have anything to do with those people. And I think that's a caricature of us. I don't think all of us are like those people. The media likes to make it look like that, but that's a soapbox I won't get onto right now. But in 17 years, Jacob and his family, outnumbered, <laughs> were able to change the lives of a multitude of people so much that they left everything to go bury patriarch. Jacob, that speaks to me. I'm, I'm desperate to find out what that looks like. So I'll move on from there. I know that's a heavy thought. I think there's a lot of things that God would have you to consider and to think about. I think there's many things that we as a church should come together and pray about to seek. If this is what maybe God would have us do in the city, what are the things that God wants us to be a part of? What are the things that we need to jump into to bring light into the culture around us? And when Jesus uses those words that you are salt, I mean, we all know that before refrigeration, salt was used to keep meat from decaying. So you would take some meat and you would salt it, and then you could travel with it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it wouldn't decay. When Jesus is saying those words to God's people, he's, he's, he's implying that idea that God has called us to be salt into a decaying world. Would you guys agree with me that there are parts of this world that are decaying? Yes, there are many, and I won't even go into them, but we know them. And I think God would want us to go and salt them to stop the the spread of decay. And then secondarily, and maybe my more favorite part of the salt analogy here, is that salt is actually a flavor. I mean, (laughs) who here in the room, as soon as they make their plate, they just salt it before they even taste it? Jesus loves you. Yes. (laughs) You are a Christian. Yes. Yes. I'm being biblical. More salt, please. But it's, it's flavor for our, our lives, for our food. But God is saying that we too should be flavor for the world around us. Are we making the world better for those around us? Or are people just walking around dodging the rocks that we appear to be throwing their way? The most hurtful thing in, in that passage where Matthew, in Matthew 5 where Jesus is talking about salt and light. Is he says, and if, the, if God's people the salt of the earth, if they've lost their saltiness, he said it is actually, in fact, good for nothing but to be thrown out into the street and to be trampled under the feet of men. So hear this. If we're not doing that thing to be salt and light, to be living a life like Jacob, that's in fact changing the culture around us, Jesus would say to us that we are good for nothing. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I refuse that. I refuse it in principle alone. I will not be good for nothing. Hear me. As long as I get to pastor this church, as long as God would allow that, this church will not be good for nothing. We will find our way. We will make an impact. We will do something because God is commanding it of us. The Christian subculture needs to It needs to die. We don't need a Christian subculture in the culture. We need to go into the culture and change the culture. It's an interesting thing that there's this idea that there's a sacred-secular divide, that we somehow, we have this, this divide in our own lives and in our workplaces and everything else, that we have this, this sacred side, which is where God lives, and we do all the God stuff, and then there's a secular side, which that's just the business side, and, and we don't let the two come together. I'm telling you, that is an unnatural thought. You do not see that in Scripture, The Hebrew people, of which this book was mostly written to, did not see it that way. God was very much active and involved in every aspect of their lives. Let me ask you a question. Does God want to be involved in your marriage? Yes. Involved in the raising of your children? Yes. Does God want to be involved in your business? Yes. Does God want to be involved in politics? Of course. Does God want to be involved in all this stuff? Yes. There's, There's actually no divide between what is sacred and secular. It is all supposed to be together. And yet we, for whatever reason, felt it safest if we stand back here with other people like us. And then we wonder why the world looks the way it looks. I'm a, a very positive person. I believe that as dark as the world might be getting around us, and I believe that there's a lot of crazy happening in the world, I also believe that the church will be fine. I'm not worried at all. I think we as Christians will be fine. The Bible tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So I have no fear in that. We will absolutely be fine. But what are we going to do? As All right, so... Can I move on? They get back from the land of Canaan. Joseph, his brothers, the Egyptians all come back. And now Joseph's brothers have this interesting thought. Well, now that Dad's gone, Joseph's gonna seek vengeance on us because we sold him into slavery. Right? He's like, now Dad was the only one keeping the peace here, but he's gone, so, so we're in trouble now. So they they they're like they go before. Joseph, and they apologize, they repent. We're sorry we did that to you back when you were 17 years old. We're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. And in fact, as they're doing this, we read that Joseph is crying, that he's weeping over them, that his brothers are in fact so fearful that that Joseph is going to seek vengeance on them, that he's weeping. And he he says these words, and this is a very famous passage in Scripture, chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear. I'm not in the place of God. I'm not going to judge you. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says these words, look around you. Do you see the Egyptians? Do you see the, the 70 people in our family, if you will? All of those people were kept alive because I was in Egypt when the famine hit. And I'm only in Egypt because you sent me here. So I know you meant evil for me, but God intended it for good. And I know that can be encouraging to some of us here. That the meat grinder that is our life sometimes just chews us up and spits us out. And sometimes people harm you. Sometimes people harm you purposefully. But I'm telling you, what those people intend for harm, God can absolutely turn around and and use for good. In fact, can I just say this to some of you here in the room? That it's quite possible that the church has harmed you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's happened to you. And if you would accept my apology, I think you could move on from your hurt. I think if you could accept my apology on behalf of the church, that you could move on. And then you can look inside of your life and see that, that God is going to use it for good anyways. God in his providence and his sovereign hand works all things to good. So this happens, as a great moment, everyone feels safe and they breathe at last. And we fast forward to the end of Genesis and it says, then Joseph dies as well. And the book of Genesis closes for us. And I want to finish with this one final thought. As we've been studying the book of Genesis. Who, how many people were here when we started Genesis back in January? A right, handful of us. So if you didn't know that, we started our study in Genesis in January of this year. And in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we read those words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the book of Genesis opens with God, the creator of everything, creating life. He brings life into existence. He brings day and night and animals and the seas and mountains and all of this stuff. He brings life into existence. And then we go through 50 chapters of the book of Genesis and it ends in death. Jacob's death is the most written about death in all of Scripture, with the exception of maybe who? Anyone want to guess? Yes, Jesus. 73 verses speak about Jacob's death. Moses is telling us this story. The end of the book of Genesis is death and death and death. Joseph dies. Jacob dies and yet at the beginning of Genesis, we have the story of life. My question for us is, how do we get from life to death? What has happened here? What is Moses telling us? What is God telling us through Moses in the story that is Genesis, the greater story? That something happened between life and death. Does anyone want to guess what it was? It's this thing called sin. That sin has entered into the world and sin causes death. That the end of Genesis ends this way because sin has come in here. And yet, when sin entered the world, when the serpent came in and deceived Adam and Eve to rebel against God and to eat of that tree that God had forbidden, as soon as sin enters the world, God brings the idea or the hope of a redeemer one day. That God says, yes, sin has come into the world, but I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to send someone, the seed of a woman, and she will come and she will undo the effects of sin and he will undo the effects of death as well this redeemer redeemer this seed of a woman is in fact Jesus Christ Jesus has been foretold to come one day and rescue us pull us out of the clutches of slavery of sin The, the book of Genesis is the gospel message for us That there was life available to us, and yet we look all around us, and all we see is death. How many people would be willing to admit that if they look at their lives and were honest with themselves that this is not the life that God intended for me? My life isn't going the way that I hoped it would, that there's all kinds of problems happening in my life. And and I would say, I agree with you. I think there's many things in our lives, and I would argue that many of those things that are not going as well as we hoped is, is the result of sin for us. Genesis chapter three says, I will send the seed of a woman and he will take care of sin for us. Jesus Christ came to earth, humbled himself, much like Jacob pictures us here, not to be served, coming to earth, not to be served, but to serve us. He lives a perfect life dies upon a cross for our sins has no right to die for sin and yet he dies on a cross is buried in a grave and on the third day christ or christ yes god raises christ from the dead overcoming sin death and the grave this book of genesis is not just an ancient book of weird people and names you can hardly pronounce it's the story of jesus christ and his love for his people In the beginning when everything was created good is how God intends our lives to look. And if it looks anything other than that, he would say, find Jesus the Savior. That's what he would say to you. That's what he would implore you to do, to seek out the the rescuer of your soul and to move you back into the goodness that is life in God. Oh. God loves you so much. I want to pray for us. I want to to pray for some specific people. I don't know who they are, but I just want to to pray for them. If you're in the room and you're hearing my words, I want you to know that that God loves you very much. I know I said that already, but it bears repeating. (laughs) that God loves you. In fact, he's, he's seen you. Okay. So here's really great. So all those years that you seem to be just wandering around doing whatever you want, even thinking, does God even care about me? God has been watching that the entire time, longing for the day when one day you would eventually stop and return to him. That has been the call that God has placed on your life and has been there for a long time. In fact, looking back now, you can see the hand of God at work in your life. You just didn't know that's what it was. That's a strange thing that that person would say that to me. That was weird that I heard that song on the radio. That's wild that that billboard said that thing right at that moment. Is anyone, is this resonating with anyone? And hear me, that's God himself working in your life. The invitation then is just to surrender your life and come to him. To stop trying to make a a living life, (laughs) that sounds weird, a living life out of that which is broken and dead. But to let God remake your life through Jesus Christ. John, John's gospel tells us that it's, it's a born again experience. Why well, try to make new which is dead and decaying and dying, right? Let's just go ahead and be made new in Christ. Just be born again. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the story of Genesis. Thank you for the picture that is life been lost to death to be restored back to life again through Christ. Thank you for bringing us together to hear these encouraging words. And God, for that, that difficult um, word we heard earlier where you're talking about um, us not gathering people unto ourselves, but to be willing to go into the, the culture around us. God, help us to do that. Father, we don't know what that looks like yet, but we are seeking the wisdom of God himself, the Holy Spirit, that he would give us direction, that we would know what you would have us to do. We actually don't need to try to figure it out on our own because you can tell us what that is. And so We ask you, God, what would you have us do? God, thank you for the people that would come and spend an evening with us to just study God's word, to to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit, to be around other believers, encouraging one another. God, I pray that you would use these next few minutes to encourage our faith, to remind us of your faithfulness to be good to us at all times, to remind us of your loving kindness towards us that brings us back to you, Lord. God, I pray that over the next 15 minutes as the the people gathered here begin to sing and declare our love for you, that you would hear it, Lord, that you would pause in everything that you're holding together by your great power, God, that you would pause to hear us today. May we just for a moment push aside our desire to hear from you and ask that you hear us for once. God, listen to your people sing and declare of your goodness and your love for us. God, I pray that this room become a a holy place where the presence of God is felt, where healings take place, where hope is instilled into us. God, we thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, not ours. But in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendecatur.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.